chapter 7. The prophetic messages attributed to the accredited Babylonian prophets, including those who served in various temples and those perceived as madmen, Abraham Malamat relates to the category of intuitive prophecy, since the so-called scientific Akkadian definition practiced by the Barum is described as both typical and rational, the intuitive divination attested as Mari seems to be both atypical and irrational. But this observation is not entirely correct. In certain cases, prophecy may be described in terms of ceremonial rhetoric, the human calls and divine answers which demand the taking of important political decisions. To categorize this conventional dialectical play as quote-unquote intuitive means to be under the spell of an, ex of an exalted Western Romanticism. This influential theory of aesthetics invents and cherishes the spontaneous inner experiences of exceptional individuals deliberately forgetting the ritualized literary background of such quote-unquote spontaneous social concerns. The Neo-Assyrian and Maori texts, however, present the local prophets, Apollum, Muhum, Nabum, Ragamu, as those who receive divine messages involuntarily. The messages are not regarded as invented or created by the Muhum. Lester Graber states, When prophets speak openly in a temple, this looks like a spontaneous spirit possession. The spirit comes upon them, and they become the mouthpiece for the deity. Or, do they believe this is so, and need this belief literally as it stands, along with the ecstatic testimony and the subsequent theatrical performance? The stereotypical language of the seemingly spontaneous play amounts to a strategically managed language that functions as the hermeneutic of the myth, as the reconfirmation of the temple tradition, of its socio-economic premises, expectations, hopes and dreams. As a rule, the contemporary cosmic geography and its particularities are involved. Therefore, it is often difficult to distinguish between actual prophetic oracles and literary prophets created by scribes. Excuse me, literary prophecies. Quote, it is often difficult to distinguish between actual prophetic oracles and literary prophecies created by scribes. End quote. Well, no wonder the prophets themselves are sometimes viewed as scribes whose speeches or reports are not performed in public as the standards of the sacred revelatory theatre and of epic consciousness and of epic consciousness would require of the sacred revelatory theatre and of epic consciousness would require instead they are composed as oracular collections and royal inscriptions in the Mesopotamian city of Mari, 18th century BC, the mediators between the heavenly divine assembly, Pudu, and the earthly royal court bear the titles of Apollum, Apiltum, answerers, Muhum, Muhutum, ecstatics, Asinum, cult singers, and Nabum, ones called. The messages they bring from the gods, 
Dagan, Adu of Halab, Shamash, Marduk, Nurgle, and the goddesses Amunatum, Diratum, Hishametum, Ninhuzgagar, Ishtar, are taken seriously by the political authorities, although these prophetic messages are subordinated to other means of divine communication. Accordingly, the identity of the prophet cannot be taken as a guarantee for the validity and truth of the prophecy pronounced, or shouted, precisely in the state of real or solemnly feigned frenzy. But a possession cult par excellence and the related professionalization of prophecy pertain to the domain and supervision of Ishtar. Van der Thorn writes in Mesopotamian Prophecy Between Imminence and Transcendence, 2000, page 79. Ishtar was deemed capable to produce, by way of ecstasy, a metamorphosis in her worshippers. Men might be turned into women and women were made to behave as men. There is evidence that at least some of the Neo-Assyrian prophetesses were in reality men, or rather self-castrated transvestites. Their outward appearance was interpreted as a display of Ishtar's transforming powers. Possessed by the divine, they were the obvious persons to become mouthpieces of the gods. Their prophetic utterances were not metaphysical slogans or theological shahadas, as the modern esoteric dreamer would tend to imagine, but the utterances of a deity revealed while standing in the temple before the animated hieratic statue. In the name of a particular god, an oracle is delivered by the temple servant, or rather the deity, Dagon, for instance, opens the mouth of and speaks from within his image. Van der Thorn comments on this rite as follows. The old Babylonian gods grant prophetic revelations only in the sanctuary. Dreams may occur at other places, but prophecy, properly speaking, is confined to the temple. When a god speaks directly through the mouth of a prophet, the latter utters the prophecy first in the temple. The prophet, Apilum or Apiltum, rises, Itbi, or stands, Izziz, to deliver the divine message in the temple. The ecstatic, Muhum, too, receives the revelation in the sanctuary. This is the place where he or she gets into a frenzy, Imahi, Imahu, utters loud cries, She Tasu, and gives the oracle. When a prophet delivers an oracle outside the sanctuary, at the residence of the royal deputy, for instance, he repeats an oracle revealed to him in the sanctuary. For that reason, the prophet presents himself as a messenger of the god, Ishpurani. He transmits the message, Temum, which he receives at an earlier stage. This means that the house of God is the most suitable place for these continuing encounters with the divine and the forthcoming revelations. And revelation itself is to a certain extent the standard cultic procedure in the audience hall of the Lord. It is performed in the divine palace, since the temple is a deity's household and palace, whose ceremonial patterns follow the established framework of the private and official life of the royalty, although metaphysically speaking the opposite is true.
Therefore, in accordance with the rules of cultic etiquette, the prophet is positioned in front of the hieratic statue as the servant or herald stands before the king. He stands, or rather lies in prostration, and listens. The Mesopotamian hieratic statue, that of the enthroned deity in full regalia, seated in the Holy of Holies, is not a religious picture, but an icon imbued with the god's essential powers and endowed with divine radiance. The divine form, Bun Nanu, or image, Salam, Salmu, is not manufactured by human artists whose hands are symbolically cut off with a tamarisk sword, but ritually conceived by the gods themselves and born in a special workshop, the Bit Mumi. Yet a clear distinction is maintained between the god and his statue, which serves as a means to make the de deity visible on earth. In this respect, the entire temple complex functions, metaphorically speaking, like a nuclear power station that provides all material and spiritual sustenance for the surrounding land and its inhabitants. Viewed respectively as a deity's private fief and vassals, the animated image is presumed able to perceive what happens in the earthly realm, to reign over the kingdom, communicate through the court messengers, apostles, and consume victuals. The mouthwashing ritual activates the statue's noetic and perceptive functions, as Angelica Berlioung writes. The ritual thus enabled it to become the pure epiphany of its god, and to be a fully interacting and communicating partner for the king, the priests, and the faithful. When the prophet speaks in the name of a god in the temple, he makes himself an extension of the god whose holy face he contemplates. When he has this privilege, Neither is the statue's face veiled, nor the statue itself hidden behind a screen. In a parallel fashion, the divine Pythagoras used to speak from behind a curtain, thus imitating the oracular statue. It is therefore no surprise that Pythagoras imitated the Orphic mode of writing, and his disciples looked upon all his utterances as the oracles of God. This encounter with the divine statue veiled or otherwise, is the ultimate paradigm for mystical longing, contemplation and union by means of liturgical communications, including sound, smell and vision. To Plato's madness corresponds the Orphic frenzy, oistros, as Peter Kingsley observes, and we might add to the Orphic frenzy corresponds the Mesopotamian prophetic madness, entering into a trance, imahu, experienced in the form of ecstasy before the Salmu. The cultic scenario of prophetic frenzy <clears throat> the cultic scenario of prophetic frenzy apparently explains why traditional skills of divination should be related to the soul transforming, illuminating and elevating standing in the place where the divine presence is manifested. For Iamblichus, the Syrian Neoplatonist, divination, mantiki, and theurgic ascension, anagogy, coincide. He argues, from De Mysterious, only divine mantic prediction, he, Thea Mantiki, therefore, conjoined with the gods, truly imports to us a share in divine life, partaking as it does in the foreknowledge and the intellections of the gods, and renders us, in truth, divine. Hence the 
emptied prophet is the theurgic receptacle filled with divine light and life emanating from the seeing and speaking deity. This real or imagined theophany implies the prophet's annihilation in the sense of the Sufi fana and God's exaltation. As van der Toorn observes, there is no room for misunderstanding as to who is speaking. That is why we never find in any of the reports describing a prophecy delivered in the temple a phrase identifying the divine speaker. The only time the prophet finds it necessary to say that God so-and-so has sent him, Ishpurani, is when the prophecy is transmitted to someone outside the sanctuary. Eventually the Neo-Assyrian prophets themselves became like interiorized and portable sanctuaries and not bound to the presence of the material divine image in order to establish contact with the gods. Although images and statues were their cultic receptacles and symbolic bodies, these gods at the same time permanently resided in heaven, and consequently they could also be praised inwardly within the human body temple. Hence, a message from the god or a revelation may occur outside the sanctuary. In late antiquity, a similar attitude became prominent among the Neoplatonists. Namely that the prophetic spirit cannot be confined to one place only, but is present on the whole cosmos, being coextensive with God. However, sometimes it seems that only the professional madmen can conceive, can receive such messages, and afterwards come to the aid of the king to whom all prophecies within the empire presumably are addressed or at least indirectly concern. These prophecies promise the intervention of the gods and their mighty support from heaven. As van der Toorn remarks, Whereas the old Babylonian gods secure the success of the king by their presence on earth, as auxiliaries of his army, the Neo-Assyrian deities influence the outcome of political and military conflict by an intervention from heaven. In the old Babylonian prophecies, the battle in which the gods become involved remains within the human horizon. In the Neo-Assyrian texts, however, the battle takes on cosmic dimensions. <laughs>